This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. the Joyce Pierce Junior Research Fellow at Lady Margaret Hall, um, and she's based here in the Refugee Studies Centre. Um, she's a socio-legal um, researcher, and her work looks at law, justice, and the administration of justice and governance, in particular in refugee camps. She's also written extensively on transitional justice and criminology, and particularly as they pertain to refugees. So she gets to be the lawyer at the RSE who does the interesting stuff. <laughs> um, and she's going to be talking as, uh, to us today about her book. And um, there are some inspection copies of the book going around, but they're um, just that for looking, but not for keeping. <laughs> if you'd like to purchase the book, there are flyers here, and there's a little bit discount as well. So, um, yeah, I'll hand over to Kirsten. Okay, thanks Catherine, and thanks everyone else for coming out tonight. Uh, the book's actually been out for about six months now, so it's not exactly hot off the press, but it is nice to have a chance to semi-officially welcome it into the world. And so in thinking about how to introduce it, um, obviously I'd like to think that it's so sophisticated and complex and nuanced that I can't possibly do justice to it in the next 40 minutes. Um, but if I was to try to sum up in a couple of seconds, or a couple of sentences, I'd say it's a book about a specific population of refugees. It's about the Karen living on the Thai-Burma border. But more importantly, it's about recognising refugee camps as complex governing environments, spaces that are shaped by many different influences and authorities. So historical, legal, political, cultural, religious, understanding that camps aren't just um, spaces in isolation, but in their own right, very complicated social worlds. So it's not really enough, of course, just to recognise that those different influences and authorities exist. We have to identify them and see how they operate and what they do and especially what happens when they interact and conflict with each other. So that was the next 200 pages. And what I wanted to talk about today is just kind of three strands, I suppose, from the book. One about how the camps on the Thai-Burma border are organised and secondly about why these camps have relatively evolved such strong community structures which I will explain in a minute. And then thirdly, what the implications are for this context in Thailand for other refugee situations around the world. Um, and so the book is about law to some extent, um, to a rather greater extent about justice and about order maintenance, but I think mostly it's about pluralism and pluralistic relationships. And among the research that's been conducted in camp settings, actually surprisingly little has analysed this kind of internal management angle. There's been much more work on the consequences of encampment, so about the creation of aid dependency or about denying refugees opportunities, the fact that camps tend to become sites where human rights violations occur, or even that the camp itself is a violation of rights to freedom of movement or choice of residence. And that's a debate that's been going on for decades, um, to a large degree start by Barbara, and the most recent contribution to it was probably last month with UNHCR's Alternatives to Encampment Policy, and that says that as an agency, HCR will now pursue alternatives to encampment wherever possible. And so I think that's, generally speaking, a very positive development, 
But we also need to realise that around 40% of the refugees in the world, nearly half of the world population of refugees, still live in camps. And so we need to think about what that means. What are the consequences for that for those people and for, for the wider societies that they come from or they live within? Um, and I think recognising that refugee camps aren't desirable homes is an obvious starting point, but they are places where thousands of people live and where they make their lives. And that may be for years, it's often increasingly for multiple generations. So my research isn't trying to justify the use of camps, but to understand how they function and how they're managed. And an important point at the outset here, of course, is to stress that there are many different camp contexts. There's not one camp environment. So at one extreme, when there's the Dadaab and Kakuma camp complexes where there's more than half a million refugees, others are 1,000 or 2,000 people. They're relatively village-like. And equally, they range from extremely insecure environments to broadly safe and stable environments. And so the Thai-Burma border camps are on the, the less dangerous side of that spectrum. At the time of my field work, which was mostly 2008 to 2010, with a follow-up trip in 2012, at that time there was around 150,000 people living in nine camps. Now there's around 130,000 people in the camps, and the drop is primarily due to an international resettlement program. Um, So these camps on Thailand have been around for about 30 years. These are photos from the first aid visit to the camps as the first refugees came over the border in the mid-1980s. And they've changed a great deal over that period, moving from very small-scale village-like societies of a few hundred or a few thousand people to a small number of large closed camps with very little freedom of movement. Um, And in that respect, um, the past five to ten years have probably been particularly challenging in terms of the camp development. They've had one of the largest largest group resettlement programs in the world, so around 100,000 people left from the camps to third countries. They've gone through a very difficult period of donor fatigue, and increasingly as changes have begun in Burma, a sort of donor movement from the context of the Thai-Burma border into Myanmar, and leaving the refugees and camps sort of really um, in a very difficult environment of funding cuts. And so currently we're talking about camps that are closed with very limited freedom of movement, tightly controlled by the Thai military junta as it is at the moment, almost total aid dependence, very few income generation opportunities and obviously a concomitant to that an immense poverty. But the important point for my research was that these haven't degenerated into kind of anarchic, ruthlessly violent spaces. And despite the real challenges that they've gone through in the last 30 years, the camps have remained kind of fundamentally stable and they've retained a fairly cohesive community sense and strong social capital. And that experience has been broadly similar across all the camps on the border. Um, And so these are the photos from 1985, and these are the photos from 25 years later where they don't actually look that much different, except that we can see a a much more dense overcrowding in the conditions that people are living in. Um, And so when I'm saying that the, the conditions in these camps are broadly safe and stable, I'm not trying to say that no crime occurs here. That would be um, very remarkable indeed. But I think there is a basic security of person and property. 
The camps experience crime, they experience violence, there is sexual violence, there is drug use, there are youth gangs, there is fighting. All of those things do exist and take place, but they're exceptional events. They're not something that's happening every day. And so if we compare with the reports from Kakuma, where some estimates say that women in Kakuma are 75 times more likely to experience sexual violence than women in communities outside, where violent crime apparently occurs on a daily basis, and where international humanitarian staff have been taken hostage. Those kind of incidents are just unimaginable in the Thai-Burma border context, and most of my research was about trying to think about why that was the case. Um, and so I was thinking about the camps in, as complex societies in terms of agency, sovereignty and legal pluralism and in terms of agency I mean, this is another debate that has been going on for a very long time we have to move beyond thinking about a generic refugee and realise that people who have been displaced are individuals with skills and capacities and histories and identities And policies have supposedly reflected that. There's greater um, recognition of the need for participation and a community-based approach. But the reality of programs still tends to marginalise refugees' voices in the design and the implementation. And yet when we look at the reality of a refugee camp, of course refugees are exercising agency all the time. The implication is that these aren't the kind of bleak spaces of forced idleness and dependency that we tend to think of, but they're also spaces where people are living normal lives. They're going to school and church and playing football and working. Um, And so agency is important in terms of these individual capacities, but it's also important in a much more organised sense, not just isolated examples of people taking decisions, but systematic institutionalised structures, political organisations and autonomous governance. And so I was looking at the relationship between agency and structure, Giddens ideas of structuration and this dialectic relationship, to what extent are refugees exercising agency and what are the kind of constraints and forces that shape that. And of course a crucial structural influence on any refugee's life is the idea of the state and how we understand the state is also important in how we think about camps. So obviously as many authors have said the category of refugee depends on the existence of the state. If there were no state borders there would be no refugees. And yet the state is very large in our conceptual understanding of refugees. It's arguably an awful lot less relevant for the day-to-day life of somebody in a camp environment. So refugees in the camps in Thailand are seen as belonging to Burma, but the children who are born there have maybe never set foot in Burma. They're living in the Thai state, but they're not extended any of the protections of the Thai state, which is traditionally done or historically done as little as possible to help with internal camp management. So in terms of understanding what sovereignty means in the camps, we need to think more broadly about sovereignty as a concept and thinking about Foucault's exhortation to cut off the king's head, no longer seeing governance as inseparable from the state, no longer seeing sovereignty as an exclusively state function. So sovereignty no longer about what the state is, but about what a particular authority is doing, whether it's exercising the will to rule. And so I argue that this understanding of sovereignty as something that's practice-based rather than territorial is really central to understanding the governance of the camps. There are spaces where multiple actors are asserting the will to rule in a number of different sort of sources of legitimacy. And there's three primary sets of actors engaged in asserting the will to rule in Thailand. The Thai government and associated authorities, 
international organisations and the refugee population itself. So, broadly speaking, the Thai government, of course, has legal jurisdiction and sovereignty, but it's tended not to exercise that, and so it's preferred instead to kind of outsource that quite explicitly to the refugee population. And the phrase that I kept being told was that they say, you know, they are your people, do it yourselves. They're not our people, they're your people. So the very clear sense in which the Thai authority was choosing to devolve those functions of of governance to the refugee population. And in terms of international organizations in Thailand, it's kind of an unusual case because the role of UNHCR here is really rather limited. So until 1998, UNHCR wasn't allowed access to the camps on the border at all. And the main role of camp management and the sort of classic UNHCR role was taken by an entity called the Border Consortium. Um, And so TBC, they provided food rations and support and shelter materials and so on. But their approach to camp management was very hands-off as well. So their idea was about encouraging partnership with the refugee population. They didn't have a formal camp management program until 2005. And it was really about um, allowing the refugees to to manage their own affairs. And so the result has been these sort of fairly strong and um, influential camp management systems. Now, in the camps on the border, seven are predominantly ethnic Karen and two are predominantly ethnic Kareni. My research was mostly with the Karen. And the systems are pretty similar. They're almost identical for both. But for the Karen, there's a Karen refugee committee, which is based outside of the camps in Thai towns. And they're the main conduit with Thai authorities outside, um, sort of at a more regional level. Then within each camp, there are camp committees, 15-member camp committees. They're elected by the refugee population every three years. There's a camp leader, and then there's departments for health and social welfare, food distribution, security, that kind of thing. Um, Below the camp committees are section committees. There are five members with a leader, social welfare member, security, and a woman's representative and a youth representative. And below that is a 10-household leader who's really just an information conduit. And feeding into that governance hierarchy are refugee-led, community-based organisations. And they're particularly strong in relation to women's issues and uh, youth issues. So there's a very strong Karen women's organisation and youth organisation. There's also an environmental action network. Some of the camps have radio programmes and that kind of thing. Um, And so the functions of the camp committees, they're really the main coordination point for anyone who needs to do anything in the camps. It could be Thai villagers who are coming to use the schools or medical facilities. It could be people coming from Burma to go to the medical clinics. It could be people coming from Burma to go to weddings and funerals. Thai police who come to investigate an alleged crime. Um, International organisations trying to implement programmes. International donors who want to visit church groups. All of these kinds of activities as well as managing the kind of day-to-day camp environment. And so they're managing the daily activities of the camp, but they're doing this in a sort of contested relationship with the Thai authorities and with the NGOs. And governance is also here about ways of seeing and the way that the Thai authorities see the refugee population and the way that NGOs see the refugee population is somewhat different. So for the Thai authorities, really their main goal in in the camps is to contain the refugee population. So their perception of the refugees is primarily as a threat to be contained in various ways. 
where international organisations tend to see refugees rather more as a vulnerable population to be protected and they want to promote and extend human rights. And those often turn into quite conflicting agendas that the camp committees have to implement. So they frequently find themselves sort of torn between the two and not really able to satisfy either. And one of the things that I look at in the book is the fact that when I say that the Thai authorities see refugees as a threat to be contained and, refu- and international organisations see them as victims to be protected, um, the international position sort of instinctively seems the more sympathetic and certainly the least um, difficult for the refugee population. But in reality, it's often a little more difficult because the Thai authorities' position on paper has been very strict, but in reality is often negotiable and you can move around it. And although the policy may say one thing, with a little bit of money or the right connections you can sort of circumvent that where the international policies which are sort of seemingly more sympathetic often they have much more complex expectations of compliance so it's somewhat harder for refugees to evade these policies and they reach somewhat deeper into the the cultural organization so that kind of contested sovereignty and its consequences is is one of the themes that I look at in some detail Another area is about legal pluralism, and this legal authority is where this kind of fragmented political authority is particularly evident. And the question of justice in refugee camps is one that has been almost entirely overlooked. Even though any refugee camp will have a huge range of justice or law-like issues. And it could be things like administrative problems, like um, a divorce certificate or an adoption certificate. It could be crime ranging from petty theft to murder or serious um, sexual violence. It could be the kind of social disputes and problems between neighbours and families. And the kind of problems that arise could be between refugees. It often becomes much more complicated when disputes are with people from outside the camp, whether those are citizens of the um, Thai citizens or maybe people inside Burma. And increasingly in these camps, since the resettlement program began, a problem has been uh, cases involving people who resettle to the US. So either somebody who borrows money and doesn't pay it back or somebody who sort of commits a crime and is resettled and and kind of interrupting this um, ideas of dispute resolution. And according to the 51 Refugee Convention, refugees are entitled to access the courts of a host state on the same basis as nationals of that country. In reality, for a variety of reasons, that's rarely the case. And so particularly in a context as in Thai-Burma border, the camps are often quite isolated. They're not really linked into the national policing court infrastructure. Refugees don't share a language. They often, in some respects, have different kind of values about what they think should be punished and how it should be dealt with. And there's been a tendency, I think, at times to see this absence of state law in refugee camps as a complete absence of authority. But in reality, it's, it's kind of the opposite extreme. There's actually multiple different types of law and authority that have influence, but none really has clear dominance. So Thai law has some influence, Burmese law has some influence, international human rights norms have some influence, um, rules by the Karen National Union, an armed group, which um, I'll sort of talk a little more about in a minute also have some relevance here, as well as the wider kind of religious, cultural ideas. 
And again, in Thailand, because the Thai government has really sort of outsourced any camp management role to refugees themselves, dispute resolution is also managed by the section committees and the camp committees and by justice committees within the camp. And one of the things that I look at is, is how that's done, not only through the actual act of dispute resolution, but through wider kind of moral narratives and didactic um, explanations and a constant sort of moral education that goes on in the camp environment and also the influence of church and supernatural spiritual beliefs so kind of pre-Christian animist ideas of um, appropriate behaviour and in looking at these different ways in which order maintenance is conducted not only through an act of dispute resolution but through sort of more subtle and more diffuse forms of order maintenance I found that this kind of contradicted some of the ways that we think about camps, that the alternative to law and order imposed from above isn't necessarily chaos, but it could be some kind of social order that's constructed from within. And the kinds of cases and disputes that occur in the camps tend to be sort of relatively minor, the kinds of things that I just mentioned, theft, fighting gambling, alcohol is prohibited so that occupies a considerable amount of the Justice Committee's time Um, the punishments that are available are usually an education, a sort of warning, an education about what the appropriate way to behave is as a Karen or as a refugee Uh, sometimes a small fine or detention in a, a small bamboo hut And the bamboo hut in and of itself isn't really a particularly secure detention site. So the form of detention uses these kind of leg stocks that you can see in the bottom right picture, which is basically a plank of wood with holes, and the offender has to put their their ankles through, and then they're sort of chained to the ground. And the use of these stocks has been an incredibly contentious issue, as you might imagine, with international organisations sort of really keen to see these be removed and replaced. Um, So they certainly face a lot of problems in terms of the kind of responses that they have available for for trying to manage problems in the camp. But I think generally speaking, the camp solutions have been quite successful. And they certainly have a fairly high widespread level of legitimacy among the refugee population. So people were quite willing to criticise individual decisions or individual judges or individual security (coughs) staff. But overall, they very much supported the idea that we should be resolving our own problems and that this is something that's appropriate and that these are you know these are appropriate mechanisms and the use of the the camp justice committees and the practices of the camp justice committees is something that's been increasingly coming into conflict conflict with international agencies with the stocks being one example um, but also sort of some other issues and their main desire was to try to harmonize the camp dispute resolution with Thai law and with international human rights norms and that's something that I look at in sort of fair, quite a lot of detail in the book in terms of how the camp justice systems function, what do they do, and what is this kind of contestation and dispute between leaders and international actors. And there's two dimensions that I look at that from. One is the institutional contestation. So what I describe as a struggle for the ownership of justice. These kind of questions about who should have authority to do justice. Can community systems really be legitimate justice actors in this kind of situation? What sort of powers should they have? 
And then the second dimension of contestation is kind of normative. So to what extent do the refugee population and international actors share ideas about what should be punished and what shouldn't? And I look at that particularly in relation to reception of international human rights ideas about gender equality and children's rights and thinking about the idea of interlegality, that you have many different sources of law operating (laughs) in one site and the camp system is a somewhat porous legal order which is being in some ways shaped by what is coming from outside and in other ways resisting it. Um, And that sort of that analysis is quite complex and it is quite a large part of the book but alongside that there's another strand which is about the nature of self-governance and self-reliance in a refugee camp and that's what I want to talk about for the next 10 minutes or so. Why have these camps in Thailand been broadly so successful in managing themselves? So why in this context do we have community-led systems that do seem to have legitimacy, that do seem to have operated consistently over a period of time to maintain a sort of stable camp environment? And what can we learn from that that might be relevant for other refugee situations? Um, So in terms of understanding... um, governance and authority in camps generally. I think probably one of my main points is the need to understand camps as a holistic normative universe. So they're not the product of a single policy. It's not about one Thai policy or one policy of the UNHCR. It's about a kind of normative universe that's created through the interaction of all of those sources of authority. And so in thinking about why the camps in Thailand seem to have been relatively more successful than other camps around the world, um, there's a number of different facets I think I wanted to highlight. The first is just the nature of the displacement context. And I think this is something that's not always acknowledged, but in the Thailand environment, people came quite slowly over a relatively long period of time. They began arriving in the 1980s. They arrived in somewhat greater numbers in the mid-90s. But it was basically a gradual refugee flow over a fairly prolonged period of time and that's very different from the kind of influxes that we're seeing now in relation to Syrian refugees for example where you have huge numbers of people coming over in a matter of months in that kind of context it's much harder to imagine that you could have the emergence of a sort of stable local governance from within the refugee population so I think in the Thailand environment the fact that the camps evolved fairly slowly from small village like camps to something much larger and that the numbers grew relatively slowly as well was kind of fairly important in helping build a a stable governance system. Secondly, thinking about the identities of those who are living in the camps. And here too, in Thailand, there's nine camps. Seven are predominantly ethnic Karen, two are predominantly ethnic Kareni. And that's changed maybe a little bit in the last few years. But certainly for the first 20 years or so, these were basically mono-ethnic camp contexts. And so there's a lot more to be said about how that ethnic identity has been defined and interpreted in the camps, about an idea of what Karenness has come to mean and and how that is um, interpreted and understood. But the main point in terms of governance, I think, is about realising that the ethnic homogeneity allowed for a, a basic consensus around what governance looks like. So how should leaders be selected? What does a good leader do? What kind of behaviour is acceptable or not? How should people take decisions? Really sort of basic ideas of what administration looks like were quite shared and uncontroversial between people. Um, And related to that, camp residents also came from a very, very similar set of backgrounds. So they were coming from areas of eastern highland Burma where they were 
overwhelmingly rural farmers, subsistence farmers. So they didn't just share the identity of being Karen, they also shared very clearly a sort of socio-economic identity, and they also shared an experience of coming from rural village areas where they were kind of accustomed to managing their own affairs. So they were accustomed to having village-level governance and to sort of working through that local leadership structure. And in those areas of eastern Burma that they were coming from, um, the Karen have been in a self-determination struggle with the Burmese government for 60 years. They're currently in peace talks. But those areas of, of Karen state have been in conflict for decades. And so the people who are coming from those regions have a very prolonged experience of coping with conflict and displacement. And they also have a really long heritage of self-reliance and self-protection strategies. And so one of the questions I pose in the book is about whether the strength of social organization, community organization and social cohesion in the Karen context, if it's perhaps not despite the lack of state protection, but actually almost because of it. So they had this familiarity with village level governance because they had no effective state protection. And then that familiarity with local governance then gave them something of a kind of adaptive advantage when they became refugees in camps, that they were sort of able to rapidly form these networks of support and service delivery. Um, another important dimension for the Karen has been the role of political and military groups. And so in the self-determination struggle, the Karen National Union and the Karen National Liberation Army have been fighting against the Burmese state, as I said, for 60 years. And in the areas of Karen State, the KNU had established a sort of civil service infrastructure that's often described as a de facto state. It wasn't fully territorially cohesive across Karen State, but there were certainly pockets of the territory which were fully administered by the KNU. They had an education department, a health department, they had courts and law and all of these things which they saw as sort of intrinsic to a civil service infrastructure. And when refugees were displaced to the camps, that infrastructure was transplanted and came along with them and gave them these kind of templates for education curriculum and health service provision. And also importantly it gave them a set of um, political relationships. So the KNU from Burma had relationships with Thai intelligence, with Thai authorities, with international organizations and donors and churches. And those networks and relationships were also really important in the early years of the camps in kind of allowing some kind of stable place to develop. So in those dimensions, like ethnic identities and political organization, cultural background, those were all the internal characteristics of the Karen that I would argue gave them this capacity for self-governance. They were able to manage themselves. They had a framework for doing that. They were sort of accustomed to doing that. But it was also very important that they were given the space to do that, that the other policies didn't shut it down. And so in terms of the Thai response, the fact that the Thai government did just outsource its responsibility to the refugee population, that it just devolved this governance responsibility. We could see that as abandoning its protection responsibilities, but it also possibly had something of a silver lining in actually allowing refugees to be able to manage their own affairs in that way. And the other policy that was particularly influential was the denial of access to UNHCR until 1998. So the fact that TBC had the main management role 
suppose a kind of different management approach than UNHCR has tended to take in other camp management environments around the world and particularly in relation to not only allowing refugees to manage their own affairs but in allowing a role for non-state armed groups which TBC sort of tacitly accepted that the KNU had these relationships and had a role to play in governance and it's not something that they um, actively investigated where UNHCR is much more likely to have been um, um, unwilling to accept that kind of tacit role for the KNU and therefore to have dismantled the structures and tried to replace them with something that they saw as sort of non-political. Um, so in terms of how that developed, I think it's also worth noting that neither the Thai government or TBC actually actively sought out to develop refugee self-governance. In fact, it was more of what they didn't do than what they did that was relevant here. So TBC didn't have a camp management program until 2005. The Thai government's approach was really about, you know, these are your people, get on with it and do it yourselves. So it's hardly a kind of orthodox response to refugee protection where we say, well, actually the most successful thing would be if you just do nothing. So in that sense, we could say that this is a more historical accident rather than something that you could replicate or expect to repeat anywhere else. I wanted to think about you know, the wider question of what does this mean for other refugee situations in the world. If the Thai-Burma border context is something that will never be repeated, you know, what lessons can we draw from that? And so I'd certainly argue that the camps in Thailand are an example of successful refugee self-management. I don't think that they're perfect by any means, but I do think that on the whole they've played an extremely constructive role um, for the camps overall and for those who've lived in them. And I think that they show that refugee self-reliance or self-management is possible and it can work. But I think probably the wider implications or the more important implications from my work would be not about the potential for self-reliance, but about the limits of self-reliance. And I think, firstly, stressing again that this is a very unique and specific context that arose through an unrepeatable set of circumstances, and that not all refugee populations have that genuine sense of community where there is a sort of legitimacy for those community leaders. And where that's not present, where there's not actually an authentic community that's recognised as such from those who are within it, it's extremely difficult to create that from the outside. And so more and more as I hear kind of policies for community-based approaches to programming, it almost creates an incentive that refugees should be engaged with through communities and that 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 community structure isn't present in every case and I think it's important to be aware of that, that when it works and when it's there it can be very valuable but if it doesn't work then you risk trying to work through self-appointed leaders and creating a whole new set of problems of kind of inequality and, and fragmentation and division. So I think one important point is understanding that this capacity for self-reliance isn't present everywhere and it's not going to be present everywhere. I think secondly, understanding that even where there is a capacity for self-governance, refugee community leaders are always going to be limited in what they can achieve. So many of the forces that ultimately shape the creation and the administration of refugee camps are totally beyond the control of refugees. And I think that in that sense, refugee camps are a sort of curious mix of fixity on the one hand and, and flux and change and uncertainty on the other. So on the one hand, people are fundamentally trapped in camps by circumstances beyond their control. And while they're there, they express agency in all the ways that I've talked about and all of the ways that others have recognised, and they do, they live their lives and they participate in governance, etc. 
But the camp fundamentally has this conditional, limited existence. One day, political circumstances change, and the camp is no longer um, no longer going to exist. And that the timing and the circumstances of that are also beyond refugees' controls. So they can and they do exercise agency, but ultimately within a sort of fundamentally fairly limited sphere. And the really big decisions about where camps are located, where they're created, when they're closed down, what kind of durable solutions approaches are given, those decisions are made by international agencies and national organisations. And that was something that became really apparent in Thailand over the resettlement programme, which began in around 2005. And that was a durable solutions approach that really came to the camps. The refugees didn't invite it. They didn't really know what it was. At the first instance of registration, very few people even wanted to sign up for it. And that was in very sharp contrast to urban refugees from Burma who were living in Delhi and KL who were begging for resettlement. And the people in the camps were really sort of not inviting this program at all. And over the next five or seven years, more than 100,000 people left. And that created a huge upheaval in terms of camp management. But it also created a huge emotional upheaval for everybody involved as people chose to leave and they were leaving behind parents and they knew that they would probably never see them again. And there was a whole additional layer of emotional loss and and trauma sort of added into the, the camp environment. And that's something that's happening again at the moment, this uncertainty about durable solutions and who is involved. Again, as there's certainly a sense at the national and international levels that politics in Burma are changing and that repatriation and return may not be too far away in the future. And the Thai military junta is expressing this very clearly and very forcefully and saying the refugees have been here too long and their country is fine and it's time for them to go back. And this is creating an enormous uncertainty for the people who are living there. And the repatriation conversations are something that's happening at the tripartite level. They're happening with UNHCR, the Thai government and with the Burmese government, but they're not really involving refugees at all. I think it's really important to remember these limits of self-reliance as the notion of self-reliance is becoming much more prominent in UNHCR policy and in refugee policies more generally. Because I think while I'm making a strong argument for the benefits of it in relation to the Thai-Burma border environment, the kind of self-governance that is apparent there certainly allows people to retain some dignity in in encampment, to build skills, to build their lives in exile, but they're still fundamentally refugees. They're still existing in very fundamentally unequal relationships with those around them. And if an employer refuses to pay them, or if the police demand a bribe from them, there's nothing they can do about that. And I think in thinking about self-reliance, we also have to understand that it's not going to be something that will ever allow international organisations to withdraw or to hand over control to refugee populations entirely because actually that leverage that's provided from the outside is still incredibly important in terms of trying to rebalance those fundamental power relationships. Um, so as a kind of concluding point, I just wanted to stress that the, the Karen and the other refugees in the camps in Thailand are quite skilled political actors in very many ways but they do lack the political leverage to pursue the big claims about their lives. And that's really reflecting the general imbalance in refugee lives, and therefore to the areas where international organisations might usefully direct their attention by challenging asymmetries of power, advocating on refugees' behalf, and therefore enabling refugees to to achieve self-reliance on their own terms. Okay, thanks.
more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.